Now, if you would please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. And we're in a very important section of the book of John. This is a time just before Jesus went to the cross. And in this, these hours before his death, he gave the disciples some very personal teachings. He taught them in a private session. And he taught them some great principles of his word and also gave them some very precious promises. During these several hours of discourses, Jesus told them some things about himself that that they didn't really fully understand. And it wasn't until Jesus had gone to the cross and had arisen from the grave that the disciples began to understand these things more fully. And really, after Jesus Uh, came back from the dead, and after he ascended into heaven, the disciples became so convinced of these things that Jesus said in these private hours that very shortly after he went back into heaven, the gospel had gone throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. Thousands of people were saved because of the witness of these disciples, and it was all because they believed what Jesus said. Now, in these private moments with the disciples... Jesus made some claims that no ordinary person would ever make. You know, we're used to hearing people brag about themselves and and many times things that people say that they can do, they're not able actually to do. They can't fulfill all the claims that they make for themselves. But Jesus was not that way. Jesus was not an ordinary person. And everything that Jesus said, he was able to live up to. He was able to die up to if necessary. Now, people who brag on themselves sometimes uh, when they can't fulfill what they have to say, then we lose respect for them. Those people lose their credibility. But that's never the way that it is with Jesus because he never said anything that he was not able to do. And so when Jesus said, I am this or I am that, he was right on. And so Jesus could say, I am what I am. And Jesus made some very important I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. Today we come to to those and one of those. And this is really one of the most controversial and most exclusive statements that Jesus made. And we're going to read about that today. Today I want to talk to you about some claims that Jesus made in this particular passage of Scripture. We'll see some things that Jesus was able to claim that no other person could make these claims. And Jesus fulfilled them all. Let's stand, if you would, please, for the reading of God's Word. We want to look today in John chapter 14, beginning in verse number 1, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he says in verse number 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And here Jesus, in verse number 6, makes a very exclusive statement. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, 
but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reading of the word that we have today. We thank you for these blessed words of Jesus and and what great words they truly are. Help us to see today, Lord, that Jesus is the only way and we need to come through him. Lord, help us as we pray, even as Brother Dalton sang today, that we can boldly come before the throne. And this is because of the intercessory work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Speak to our hearts today through the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, I'd like for us to think about the scene where Jesus makes these incredible statements. The time is just before the hour, or just hours before the cross. Judas has already left the room, and what Judas has gone to do is to seal the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are now 11 true disciples that are left in this room. These are 12, or 11 men rather, who, who are true believers in Jesus Christ. These are real disciples. And as Jesus sat there with those 11 believing men, he began to teach them certain things about himself. These were the disciples who in just a very short time would be given the responsibility of spreading the news that Jesus had come into the world to save people from their sins. That would be their awesome responsibility. During these hours that Jesus taught them in the private conversations, Jesus gave them the teaching about the Lord's Supper. And he said, this, this, this bread represents my body that will be broken for you. And he said, this cup that you drink, this contains or represents the blood that will be shed for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. And those were very important truths. And yet, as the disciples heard Jesus tell these things to them, They didn't fully comprehend what this was all about. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. In just a few hours, Jesus would be crucified. These disciples would be overcome with their sorrows. Their faith would be severely tested. And so this is why Jesus began this portion of the scripture in verse number one. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Last week, I preached on that statement. Let not your heart be troubled. And Jesus could say that to the disciples because Jesus is the only one who can heal a broken heart. And so Jesus said, you don't need to be troubled about this. And as we talked about last week, we do have great reasons to be troubled. The world in which we live in is a wicked world. There are great reasons to be troubled. But knowing Jesus Christ, we have greater reasons not to be troubled. Well, in these scriptures, Jesus made some claims... And all of the claims that Jesus made, he is able to fulfill, and he will fulfill. Now, first this morning, we want to look at what Jesus said, because Jesus told the disciples that he was the coming king. First, we see that Jesus is the coming king. And that's a, that's a claim that the disciples continued to miss. And we'll see this in another way in just a moment. But the Bible, or rather the disciples, did not fully understand the relationship that this King Jesus had to his kingdom. Now these disciples were mostly like 
the rest of the Jews who lived around them. They were looking for a Messiah. They expected that the Messiah would come. And yet they believed that when he came, that what he would do is to establish a kingdom right then in the world. And these disciples thought that surely that Jesus is about ready to establish this kingdom. He will once again restore the kingdom to Israel. Jerusalem will once again become the capital city of God and his people. But the physical kingdom of Israel was not what Jesus had in mind at this time. Now there are some people who believe in dispensationalism and they think that Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel at this time. And when the Jews rejected Jesus as their king, then Jesus put another plan into place, and that was to redeem the Gentiles as well. But I don't believe that's a correct interpretation of Scripture. I don't believe that Jesus actually intended to set up a physical kingdom at this time. But rather, what Jesus was going to do was to put in place a spiritual kingdom. And if Jesus had intended all along to to make a physical kingdom at this particular time, then we could look at Jesus and we could say he was a failure. Jesus couldn't do what he intended to do. Folks, I want to tell you, the Jesus I serve and the God that I serve never fails. He does exactly what he intends to do, and everything that he does works according to his plan and purpose. So the physical kingdom, that wasn't Jesus' intention. He was going to establish a spiritual kingdom in which all men, by their faith and their trust in him as their Savior, would become a part of that spiritual kingdom. Well, the disciples didn't understand all of that until later. And then when they finally did understand it, the words of Jesus came back to them. And they took on a whole different meaning, a different outlook. Jesus would leave them. That, that would happen. But then they understood that Jesus would not leave them forever. Now look at verses 2 and 3 again, if you would, please. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus said, I will come again. And when the disciples finally got that message, when they understood what Jesus really meant by this, do you know that the fact that Jesus is coming back became the rallying cry of Christianity? I mean, this is the very thing that people were looking for in that first century. Jesus said he's coming back. And folks, that was an audacious claim. No one ever promised that they would die and come back and able, were actually able to accomplish that. And so when the disciples saw that Jesus did come back from the dead, when he was risen from the grave, that substantiated the claim that he's able to, he's able, uh, to come back from the dead. And so also they could believe this promise. When he says he's going away and says he will come back, he most definitely will come back. They believed it and they faithfully proclaimed that message. And so it's true, folks. I mean, the hope of Christianity today is the very fact that Jesus is coming back. The Apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the early disciples believed it. They called it the blessed hope and they looked forward to it. But you know something? I don't think that Christians today really appreciate this doctrine. Most Christians today don't really think about the second coming of Christ, and we don't have the full expectancy that those disciples in the first century had. I mean, these people were so expecting that Jesus would come back that they made that a part of their everyday living. 
Even when they greeted another person, they would greet them and they would convey the idea that Christ is coming back. You ever heard the word Maranatha? Maranatha is a word that we have in the Bible. And the word actually means, our Lord comes. And when the disciples would greet one another in the first century, they didn't say, well, hello, how are you doing? And they didn't say, what do you think about the weather today? They said, Maranatha, brother. Maranatha, sister. And what they were saying was, our Lord comes, brother. Our Lord comes, sister. Maranatha. And that was their common greeting in the first century. I once heard the story of a preacher who was preaching on the subject of the second coming, and he was explaining that word, Maranatha, our Lord comes. And he said, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we just greeted one another with that? Whenever we saw one another, that we would say, Maranatha? And he said, here's what I want you to do. When you see each other, when you come back to services again, I want you to greet one another with Maranatha. Well, this was a Sunday morning, and they were coming back to church on Sunday night. And so the pastor pulled into the parking lot on Sunday night, and there was a couple of the elderly ladies that were standing in the parking lot, and you could tell they were arguing with one another. I mean, they were debating one another, and the problem was they knew that they were supposed to say something special that night, but they couldn't remember what the word was. And so they kept arguing back and forth about what this word was they were supposed to say. Well, finally, the pastor approached them, and one of the ladies stuck out her her hand, and she said, Marijuana, pastor. (laughs) Well, the word's not marijuana. It's Maranatha. Our Lord comes. Now, wouldn't that be a great thing for Christians to use today? Jesus is coming back. And the next time you see another Christian, maybe you just want to say, Maranatha, brother, Maranatha, sister, Jesus is coming again. And folks, when Jesus comes, he's going to rule as a king. Perfect peace and righteousness will be characteristic of the rule and reign of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice an important fact about Jesus' claim, and that is Jesus will not sin for us. He will come for us. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And indeed, that was the promise that the angels gave when Jesus ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, the angels said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus is coming back. And folks, I believe that when Jesus comes back, it'll be just like the scripture says, it will be this same Jesus. Not another Jesus, but the same Jesus. Now, what does that mean? I believe it means that when Jesus comes again, we'll still see the scars in his hands and his feet where those nails were driven. I believe that we'll still see the the imprint of the crown of thorns that was placed down into his forehead. The same Jesus is coming back. And as we look at the body of Jesus, we won't be thinking, well, look how he died. Look look at the marks of defeat in the body of Jesus. Those aren't marks of defeat. Because through those nails and through that crown of thorns, through the beating and the suffering, and through the pain that God allowed to be inflicted upon him, and the fact that God himself turned his back as his only begotten son, it was through that that Jesus won the victory over sin and gave him the right to come back. So Jesus is a coming king. He says, I'm coming back for you. I'm not sending for you. I'm coming back to get you. Now, that was a great claim. And it's a claim that Jesus will live up to. 
But now I want you to notice the second claim that Jesus made, and we find this in verse number 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you know of all the claims that Jesus ever made, that is the most exclusive? In this claim, Jesus said, I am the real road. Jesus is the real road. And folks, that's not only an exclusive claim, but that is an offensive claim. We were talking today about offending people, and surely you don't want to do that. But if you become offended by this statement that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, I'm sorry, you just have to be offended. This is not a politically correct statement for us to make today. Christians even shy away from this claim. But Jesus was not ashamed or afraid to make this claim. And he, uh, he boldly proclaimed, there's no other way that you will ever get to heaven unless you go straight through him. There is no other road. Now, you try saying that in a public assembly today. I mean, folks, if a politician ever got up and said these words, that Jesus is the only way that you can get to heaven, he'd be vilified for saying that because people don't believe that today. People believe that there are many paths to get to God. You just choose the path that you want to take. And unfortunately, sadly, among evangelical Christianity today, new evangelicals, they preach that kind of doctrine. I mean, you can find some other way to God just if you are sincere in whatever path that you take. You just be sure you are sincere and you believe in that. You're going to find a way to get to heaven. That's not what Jesus said. This was a very bold claim. There's no mistaking what he said. Now, some people will say, well, pastor, I think you're misinterpreting that verse. You're misinterpreting what Jesus was saying. He didn't really mean that. But I want to tell you, I'm not interpreting the verse at all. All I'm doing is reading the verse. This is what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then he makes an exclusive statement. No man comes to the Father but by me. How much interpretation does that need? It's pretty clear. It's a very plain statement. It's a plain claim. If you have any hope at all of going to heaven, Jesus is the only way that you'll ever get there. Now, let's think about this for just a moment. What if it were possible for you to get to heaven some other way? You ever thought about what you would say to God when you got to heaven? If there was some other way to get there, what would you say to God? Would you say, when God says, how did you get here? Would you say, oh, well... I bypassed your son. I thought your son was a liar. I didn't believe anything that he said. I bypassed him. And I thought all of these things that the Bible said about Jesus having to come into the world and be a sacrifice for sin. I don't believe in all that sacrifice stuff. So I came up another way. Do you see how foolish that would be? Can, Can you think about how insulting that would be to God? Either you totally reject the God of the Bible and you choose some other basis, some other way to go to heaven, or you must come by the way that the Bible says. You can't have the Bible saying one way and people coming another way. It's impossible. Now, if you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe it's true, you don't have any basis to believe there's a heaven anyway. So you must either totally reject Christianity and totally reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, or you've got to come exactly like the Bible says. There aren't any other options, and there are no other logical conclusions. And friend, when you say, I can get to heaven some other way, you insult the very God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to reach him outside of Jesus. 
So Jesus makes the claim he's the only way to God. And he doesn't say, well, I'm one of the ways that you can get to God. And he doesn't say, I'm, I can point out a way that you can get to God. You know, Buddha never said, I am the way to God. His name actually means the one who points the way. Now, Buddha may have said, I can point you in the right direction. I don't think he did, but he may have said that. I can point you in the right direction. I can show you the way. But Buddha never claimed to be the way. But this is what Jesus said. This is the claim that he makes. I am the way. And folks, if Jesus made a statement like that, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's actually the Lord. And you have to choose which one that he is. So Jesus is the real road. Now, sadly, there are many people who don't want to take this road. They, they have other roads that they prefer to take. If I'm giving you directions to go to San Francisco, I can tell you there are multiple ways that you can go. You can choose to go down 101, head south, cross the Golden Gate Bridge, and enter into the city. You might decide, well, I don't want to go that way. I'll, I'll go by Vallejo. I'll pick up 80, and I'll go across the Bay Bridge, and I'll get into San Francisco. Or if you really like to drive and you've got lots of time to spend, take 680, go down to San Jose and come up from the south. You can do that if you want to. But when it comes to going to heaven, there are not multiple ways that you can choose to get there. There's only one way to come. And Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. But still, traveling some other way is what people want to try. So what some people do is they try the road, they want to travel to God by the way of nature. I mean, it's obvious by looking at this world around us that there is an intelligent creator out there. And a person is a fool if he can look at this world and, and say that God or somebody didn't create all of this. It, didn't ju- it can't just happen. And so some people, rather than choosing the God who made it all, will choose nature itself. And they say, I'll become one with God through nature. Well, it's certainly true that you can see God through nature. That reveals to us there is a God But one thing that you'll never learn from nature, and that is you'll never learn how you can be made righteous with that God, how you can come into fellowship with that God, how you can actually know him. And the only way that you can know God is through what we read in the Bible and coming through the one way, Jesus Christ. You can find out God by nature, but you'll never find out that you need a Savior through nature. Then some try morality. They say, well, God likes good people. And so I'll be a good person. And so thereby God will like me. And I'll have fellowship with God. Well, you know, that's a really nice theory. But did you notice the Bible has already said there is none good? No, not one. Not one who's good. And when you think about that, if, if you're going to try goodness to get to God, just, just exactly how good do you have to be? How good do you have to be to see God? Well, there's only one thing that God requires, and that is perfection in goodness. So if you're going to be good, you'd have to be absolutely perfect. When you look at the Bible, when it talks about God being good, does that mean, well, God's pretty good, God's relatively good, God's mostly good? That's not what the Bible means when it says that God is good. God is perfectly good, and goodness and righteousness perfectly is what God requires. Do you know that the Bible teaches the total depravity and the total inability of man? The Bible teaches that. But you'd never guess it because of the way that people preach today. uh, That kind of doctrine is so offensive that preachers won't preach about the total depravity of man. 
Instead, they'll read the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where it says that we're dead in trespasses and sin. And they'll say, well, surely there has to be some other meaning to that. I mean, don't tell me that I'm no good. Don't tell me that I'm a dead sinner. And so preachers will preach, well, you're not really dead in sin. You're just wounded. You can get better. You just need to try a few things and get better. You're not really dead in sin. You're sick. You can get a little bit better. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are dead in trespasses and sin. And so these preachers will say, well, we'll substitute something else. And so we'll just say that a man has the internal seed of faith. And that internal seed of faith has been planted in all of us. And all that has to happen is that little seed of faith has to be watered a little bit. And it will grow. And then we can enter into a relationship with God. The Bible never says anything like that. There is not an internal seed of faith in any person. Faith only comes by the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us faith. And so when God saves us, he does everything from first to last. He doesn't do nearly everything and leave something up to you. God does it all. And so goodness, that'll that'll never get anybody to heaven. You could never be good enough. There's not enough good things you could ever do. Well, then if it's not nature and it's not morality, then let me try something else. I think that I'll try instead the road of religion. And people try that. They say, well, God likes religious practices, and so I'll be baptized. I'll go over here and I'll get baptized. God likes people who are baptized, and so I'll do that. I'll take communion. God likes people who take communion. He's commanded that. Or I'll get confirmed into somebody's church, and so that will do. But you know what all that is? That's saying that God can be found in external things. God looks at the external things, and that's where we can actually find God. But folks, I want you to understand something. God is not found in the externals. God doesn't look at external things that you may do. There's only one thing that God looks on, one thing that God looks at, and that is your heart. And there's only one way that your heart can be changed, and that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's believing in Jesus. So there's nobody who can have a changed heart except Jesus, through Jesus, because he's the one who heals broken hearts. So a sinner, every person is born a sinner. All of us are born spiritually ruined, and there is no hope for us. But I want you to notice this statement today, that Jesus takes us from ruin to righteousness. And that's the whole crux of the claim that Jesus is making. You can't come to the Father because you are spiritually ruined. You don't have anything at all that you can offer God. There is no righteousness of yours that God will accept. And so serious is your problem that if you come to God and you offer your righteousness or what you think is good in God's eyes, God turns it down. And that's because the only righteousness that God will ever accept is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So you need all of that. There's no other way that you'll get to heaven unless you have all of those things. And Jesus is the real road. He's the only one that can provide those things. Now, the wonderful blessing, I believe, is that Christ doesn't make you come to him. He doesn't make you come to him. Instead, he comes to you. Now, the modern idea of preaching today is that forgiveness has already been obtained. Redemption has already been accomplished. 
And so the only thing that you need to do is just come to Jesus. But I would tell you that that is a sad, hopeless approach. Because if you're dead in trespasses and sin, you can't come to Jesus. He has to come to you. What a claim Jesus made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now I want you to notice another statement, another claim that Jesus makes. Thirdly, Jesus is the Father's fulfillment. He's the coming King. He's the real road. And then he also says, I am the Father's fulfillment. Now Jesus had just told Thomas, there's no way you can come to the Father but by me. And then he says, actually, if you have seen me and you have believed in me, then you've already seen the Father. Well, then Philip pops up with a question or or a statement. And this we find in verse number 8. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. I want you to look at Jesus' reply to that in verse number 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, Philip, so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Now, throughout John's Gospel, we've seen many times where Jesus makes statements of equality with the Father. And it's utterly foolish for anyone to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. There are so many statements in the Gospel of John that make this very clear. Jesus is God. It's all throughout the Gospel of John. But friends, I want to warn you that even though this is made so clearly, the statements are made so clearly to us in the Gospel of John, yet there are people, and I can guarantee you this is going to happen to you, there are people who will show up on your doorstep, they'll have a Bible in their hands, they claim to be Christians, But their doctrine says Jesus is not God. Did you know that the Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is the God? Jesus was created. He is a created being. But Jesus has something far different than that to say. He is co-eternal and co-existent with the Father. How do we know that? Because Jesus already said in the Gospel of John, I and my Father are one. And then right here in these verses, I am in the Father and the Father in me. Now let's go back just a little bit and let's look at Philip's misunderstanding. What is it exactly that Philip's asking for? Philip is asking for a theophany. You know what a theophany is? A theophany is a visible manifestation of God. And what Philip is particularly asking here, he says, give us a visible manifestation of the Father. Now, this had happened before. This was asked before. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 and verse number 18. And this is when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And there he asked for a visible appearance of God. Moses is on Mount Sinai. God's in the process of giving him the Ten Commandments. God's giving him all the rest of the ceremonial laws. Also, he is providing for him uh, the plans for the tabernacle. And as God was giving him all these things, Moses asked that he might see God. Now, I want you to notice what happens in verse number 18. This is in Exodus chapter 33. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. That's Moses speaking to God. Show me thy glory. And he said, this is God speaking I will make all my goodness 
pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses saw the glory of God, and, and this wasn't just seeing God by faith, but God allowed him to have a visible manifestation. About 600 years later, a similar occurrence happened with Elijah. Elijah tells the story about how God came to him first, or there was a strong wind that came first, then an earthquake, then there was a fire, and then there was a still, small voice. And God spoke to Elijah in that still, small voice. So here's what Philip wants. He says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. Give us a real line of sight to the Father. And that's when Jesus said, Philip, when you see me, you have seen the Father. Now, here's the lesson that we learn from this statement. Believing Jesus is seeing God. And I might qualify that statement somewhat. Believing Jesus is recognizing the Father or recognizing God. You see, when these Pharisees and others came to Jesus and they mocked him, right while they were mocking him, they were looking into the face of God, but they didn't recognize that he was God. But when you put your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you trust him, that's when you recognize that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Father. Now, someone asked me a few days ago, how do we know that we're in the right religion? Folks, here's the way you know this. That is that you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. You trust him as your personal Savior. And then the Holy Spirit witnesses with your spirit that he is God and that you're one of his children. That's how you know. Well, all of the disciples finally realized this. After Jesus was crucified and arose from the grave, they finally understood it all. It became clear to them. John writes about 55 to 60 years after the fact. And by that time, it had become abundantly clear to all of them that Jesus is the Father, he's a God. And so John could write in the very first chapter of the gospel, verse number 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He wrote in the 18th verse, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So what a great claim. He's one with the Father. Jesus says, I am the eternally existent God. You see me and you've seen the Father because I'm the Father's fulfillment. Now there's one last claim that I want to show you. He's the coming King. He's the real road. He's the Father's fulfillment. And then finally, Jesus is your faithful friend. What is a friend? If I were to ask each of you to define what you think that a friend is, we'd probably get several different answers, but I think all of the answers would probably come right back to this, and that is a friend stands by you no matter what, and a friend will do what you ask them to do. And did you know that Jesus does whatever his friends ask? Look at verse number 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, 
I will do it. That's one of the most wonderful promises in God's word. Jesus does not say, if you ask for something, sometimes I'll give you what you ask. He didn't say, well, if I'm not too busy, I'll do what you ask. I'll get back to you on that. He never said that. He didn't say, if you ask for something, I'll give you something similar to what you ask for. That's not the promise that he made. Here's Jesus' promise. You get exactly what you ask for. Jesus is a faithful friend, and a friend always grants a friend's request. Now, according to R.A. Torrey, the doctrine of prayer in the Bible, he says, is that there are certain people who can pray in a certain way and who will get not merely some good thing or something just as good as what they ask for or something even better than what they ask, but they will get the very thing they ask for. Now, let's go back and let's consider here Who is it that gets what they ask for? Who's Jesus talking to? Well, every person in the room is a disciple. And I made that point in the first part of the message, so this will become very clear to us right now. Every single person in this room is a disciple. All of them are believing disciples. And so thereby, all of these are Jesus' friends. These are not words that Jesus spoke to the public. And so we never find in the Bible where Jesus made any kind of promise like this whatsoever. Not the promise that he made to his own disciples. Now this promise is that only people who have trusted Jesus as their personal Savior are his friends and can have their prayers answered. Now I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is the Bible truth. And this may be offensive to somebody today. But prayer is for no one but Christians. And you say, well, pastor, that is the most bigoted, narrow-minded statement that I've ever heard. Are you trying to tell me that the Muslims who drag out their prayer rugs three times a day and point themselves towards Mecca, that they have no right to pray? Are you saying that? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Years ago, Bailey Smith, who was past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, made a statement. He said, God Almighty does not hear the prayers of a Jew. Now, that wasn't a prejudicial statement against Jews. Let me explain to you what he meant. What he meant was that Mark Smith, the Baptist, and Pope Benedict XVI, the Roman Catholic, and George Bush, the Methodist, if they don't trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior... They have no right to come into the presence of God. They have no right to ask anything because it has to come in the name of Jesus. Now, just back up a verse, and you'll see that in verse number 12. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, He that believeth on me. In verse number 6, we read it a moment ago. Jesus said, The only way that you can come to the Father is through Him. That's a very emphatic statement. And this is an emphatic statement that only when you pray in the name of Jesus will you ever get a prayer granted. Now, does God hear the prayers of those who aren't born-again believers in Jesus? Now, it might surprise you to hear me say this, but my answer to that question is yes. God hears the prayers, but God never made a promise that he would grant any prayer unless it came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, these are bold, audacious statements. These are the kinds of statements that set Jesus apart from being like any other person who ever lived. 
And indeed, Jesus is different because Jesus is not only a man, but Jesus is God. Now, I have one last point in closing I want you to see. And this is, for all the claims that Jesus made, there's one more thing here that is totally unbelievable unless you know the character of the one who said it. Because Jesus always tells the truth, you can believe this statement. You find it in verse number 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Do you hear that statement? Jesus said, greater works will be done. Now, hold on just a minute here. What have we been talking about in John? Seven signs that show us that Jesus is truly the Son of God. Seven signs, turning water into wine, uh, causing paralyzed people to walk again, enabling the blind to see, and my goodness, even raising somebody from the dead. So, Jesus, are you telling us now that greater works than that will be done? That's what Jesus said. And folks, here is the greatest work of all. The greatest work is that dead sinners are brought to life. The greatest work that's ever accomplished is when a person who is dead in trespasses and sin is brought to life, given eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say it's the greatest work? This is more powerful than raising somebody who is physically dead. Because there's so much more involved in this. What does it take for a dead person to be brought to spiritual life? You want me to tell you what it takes? It takes God himself coming in the form of a man. It takes God himself being placed into the womb of the Virgin Mary. God himself packed into a sperm to impregnate Mary and then become the incarnate Son of God. It takes God himself going to the cross, living a perfect life, then going to the cross, crucified on that cross, put into the tomb, raised from the dead again. It takes all of that for a dead sinner to be brought to life. It is more substantial, far more substantial, a greater work than raising the physically dead. Well, did that happen? Did it happen? Were there greater works when Jesus died? Well, in fact, there were. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 dead sinners were brought to life. Lazarus was only one dead sinner, wasn't he? Or one dead man that Jesus brought physically back to life? Only one man. And yet, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost came to know Jesus as their personal Savior and were brought from death to life. Within a few months, or at most a few years, 20,000 more people in the city of Jerusalem were raised from death into life. Within 300 years, the gospel of Christ had permeated the Roman Empire so that within 300 years, all vestiges of paganism had been rooted out. Dead sinners were brought to life. And that's the greater work. The question for you today is, do you believe these claims? People are still being saved today. Dead sinners are still brought to life. Do you believe these claims? Jesus is the coming king. He's the real road, the only way to God. He's the Father's fulfillment. And if you trust him today, you'll find out he'll be your faithful friend. Do you believe it? Jesus says, I am what I am. I'm all in all. I died for your sins. And that's all that you need to believe today to be brought to spiritual life. Jesus paid it all. Everything that you owe to him, Jesus paid it all. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you
for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are able to fulfill all of these claims that are made. Most of all, we're so thankful that we are able to receive you as our personal Lord and Savior. And today, dead sinners can be brought to life. I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to some heart today. Encourage that person. Show them the way. Show them the truth. And Lord, we just pray that there might be some sinner who would trust you today and realize that there's only one way to go to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for Christians in this room today who would faithfully proclaim the claims that Jesus made, that we would never be afraid to say the very same things that Jesus said. And though they are exclusive claims, and though they may be offensive claims to some, yet these are the very words that the Lord spoke himself. Lord, help us to stand up for what we believe and make this a real statement of our faith. Lord, bless in this invitation. Speak to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.